the mysterious science of alchemy. What is it? It seems there are two universes, the universe of science and the universe of alchemy. The latter being filled with strange stories and obscure operations, like those of the famed alchemist and traveling magician, Dippel von Frankenstein, who reportedly successfully conducted the darkest of all the alchemical experiments, the raising of the dreaded homunculus, a soulless creature rather like a modern e-girl that by all accounts acted like a real man, even smoking a pipe like his master, and yet by all accounts was in possession of a foul temper, the kind of abomination you wouldn't want to cross down a dark alley. Interestingly, the operation itself requires rainwater struck by lightning, and of course, requiring the semen of the alchemist, fresh manure and rainwater. Understandably, one can also view it from the perspective of, amusingly, thinking of a new, untrained alchemist pulling himself off into fresh cow manure, down in some dank pseudo-laboratory. And yet, I believe all these accounts have, however, entertainingly, cleverly covered the real truth. Walter Ling said it best when he said, Two universes. The universe of science and the universe of alchemy. To the scientist, alchemy is a farrago of medieval nonsense, which enlightened materialist method has rightly consigned to the discard. To the alchemist, the scientific universe is no more than an abstraction from a much greater whole. Behind science, says the alchemist, there is science all unsuspected except by a negligible few in every age there exists technology of noumena as superior to the technology of phenomena as supernova is to a candle flame to the alchemist all the phenomena of the universe are combinations of a single prime energy inaccessible to ordinary senses only a minute cross-section of the total cosmic spectrum is bent by the senses and so rendered tangible. Science has defined this minute abstraction as its total concern and is therefore condemned to turn endlessly inside a nutshell of its own making, learning ever more and more about less and less. So it makes sense then that in this engagement with the worlds of alchemy and agriculture, biodynamics specifically, something we've handled on this show in the past, that my guest Phoenix Aurelius should have found such congruence in theory and practice. He has been a practicing laboratory alchemist for over 20 years, tracing a lineage of sorts from the famed Paracelsus Research Society and associates of the prominent alchemist Frater Albertus. A man associated with such people as Joseph Leschewski and Israel Rigardi, to name just a few, as well as all the prominent alchemists currently practicing in the United States. We talk in detail about his idea of alchemy culture and how this applies to biodynamic agriculture. He has an incredibly wide breadth of knowledge and excellent way of expressing it with all kinds of fascinating insight. His principles, I believe, after listening to him, can lead to an exponential regeneration in a world of exponential decay. I have links in the show notes to his website that lists 
his spagyric tinctures, publications, and he also runs courses for those interested in pursuing this path further. Please enjoy. Phoenix, thanks for coming on my uh, humble show, uh, despite the strange spiritual and civilizational apocalypse that seems to be going on over there at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, uh, that might be an understatement. Yeah, <laughs> I certainly hope for your case uh, that you're um, distanced from it. Yeah, absolutely, I am. And thank, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, pleasure. So I think a logical place to start is maybe just a quick rundown of, of what you do and to give the audience some kind of context of what we're going to start talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do, you, do you have an introduction that you would like to make or should I just hop in and kind of introduce myself? Uh, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, so my name is Phoenix Aurelius and for uh, almost the last 20 years, I guess it's 17, approaching 18 years now, uh, I've been a practical alchemist, and uh, for about 15 years, I've been teaching professionally. And I'm also an enthusiast about agriculture and permaculture. And one of the things that I think is most important for people to realize is the concept of what I, I would refer to as alchemiculture and also alchemicology, because alchemiculture is alchemical principles applied to agriculture or to permaculture and alchemicology, uh, what I call it, would be alchemical principles applied to ecological practices. And because human beings have found themselves in such a position, such as it is, with interfering with natural processes, if we don't begin to practice things in a way that is sustainable and doing them as nature would, then we're going to inevitably end up with some very harmful repercussions. And uh, I think most people, unless they're entirely blind to uh, this particular aspect of, of the world, are starting to see many of those negative ramifications uh, already. Whether a person is a climate change advocate or not, there are definite changes happening to ecosystems like soil erosion and the use of pesticides and herbicides and so on and so forth. And so being able to look at things with a new eye and being able to understand things within the context of alchemy, which is nature's science, uh, should be able to give us a, a really good understanding and a leg up in terms of being able to restore our ecosystems, restore our agricultural uh, systems, and begin to work with nature in, in perfect harmony and symbiosis to be able to create uh, a, a new era, more or less, for our sustainability and our, our shared symbiosis as a planet. So just quickly to kind of backtrack a little bit, I just wanted to discuss, how does one get into alchemy? I've read books by Falconelli, Frater Albertus, which I, I believe is important in your story. It's kind of a strange thing to, to get into. How did you get into particularly practical laboratory alchemy? Well, when people ask me this, the answer is actually by fate and fortune. I happened to dislocate my ankle when I was a kid, when I was about 16 years old, and uh, all my friends were skaters. And because I had a dislocated ankle, I actually dislocated it three times in a 90-day period. Uh, it was pretty much out of the cards for me to continue down that path. I, I had dislocated it skateboarding <laughs> every single time. So it was... Uh, just kind of an inherent weak point and I was sick of injuring myself and so I took to the mountains. Um, at that time in high school I had a lot of free periods 
because I transferred schools and my other school was, was a lot more tenacious with the requirements. And so I had uh, in my senior year a lot of, of free time and I went into the computer lab and printed off this little document from uh, it was just a PDF that somebody was offering at the time, or maybe even just an image file. I don't even remember actually, but it was, it said how to make a spagyric tincture. And it had this little flow chart on it. And I didn't know what the term spagyric meant. And I couldn't find any information on things uh, at that time. Now this was about 2003 uh, or maybe even really early 2004. What ended up happening was that uh, I took that flowchart and I just started making uh, spagyric tinctures out of items that I would wild harvest during my time in the woods. And uh, my beginnings were really, really humble. I remember learning about essential oil distillation. And so I went and grabbed myself a stainless steel teapot uh, from like a secondhand store. I'm not sure if you guys call them the same thing in, in Australia, but this would be a place like here in the United States, like where somebody's owned something and then they give it away to a charity that resells it and typically hires people with developmental disabilities or other things so that it, it's kind of like a charitable organization. So I just found a teapot from there and um, started sticking herbs in it and filling it full of the creek water and distilling my own essential oils and making my own tinctures and things like that. And a couple of years down the road, I worked at this really progressive uh, coffee shop called Mojo's Cafe. And um, it was like a coffee shop, art gallery, and music hall all in one. I ran into a woman who was an herbalist there and she would try, at that time I was making custom infusions and decoctions for people who wanted to come in and then adding some of my tinctures to it. And she ended up asking me how my tinctures were so potent because she'd never experienced anything like the potency uh, that I had done. And she was an herbalist for 20 some odd years or possibly more. And uh, so I, we compared notes and she said, wow, this is amazing. And she talked to some of her friends because there was considerable age gap. But I think at that time she was in her 50s and I was in my uh, late teens or early 20s. And she came back to me and said, you know, what you're doing is actually part of the Western alchemical tradition. There used to be a guy here in Salt Lake City, actually, who had the largest alchemy school in the world from 1960 to 1984. And some of his students are still alive. And uh, what you're doing is called spagyrics. And I said, oh, yeah, I, I've heard that term. That's on this flowchart that I use to, to make all of my tinctures. And she said, well, there you have it. That's part of the alchemical tradition. And after that, I... Um, just started looking into and finding those students and any resources that I could from Frater Albertus initially. And uh, that led me to Jean Dubuis, who taught after Frater Albertus. Um, he was actually teaching concurrently to Frater Albertus, but not in the United States or the Americas. He was teaching in France. He, he did speak a little bit of English, but it was very, very small. And so he had a French organization called Les Philosophes de la Nature. And then he found... Uh, a French fellow living in, I think he was living in Quebec, uh, Canada at the time, whose name is uh, Patrice Malaise. And Patrice basically was able to uh, do all of his translations into English. And so if you see him doing English pre presentations or presentations for English speaking audiences, it's Patrice who is performing all of that uh, uh, translation work for him. And uh, eventually there were enough students that were very interested in this because Frater Albertus had died and kind of left this huge uh, bleeding gap <laughs> uh, in the need 
for alchemical education in the United States. Um, one of Frater Albertus's most tenured students, Jack Glass, um, started teaching. He had Russ House, Russell House and Sue House uh, are their names. And um, they kind of teamed up together and, and co-taught a lot of the material and were the uh, kind of like CEOs or presidents, I guess you could say, of the organization for a while. And eventually Jack Glass kind of died and Russ and Sue House tried to hold on to it and, and just couldn't. And then Jean Dubuis died and things just kind of started to fizzle out by the beginning of about 2000, 2002 at the very, very latest. And um, that was pretty much it for the alchemical resources. But, you know, this was uh, when I was doing all of this work was like 2003 to 2004, 2005. So the, the materials were still fresh. They were still available. There was still English uh, published materials. And so I just got my hands on it. And uh, in 2010, maybe it's 2009, but I think it was around 2010, I was sitting at my desk and a bulletin from the International Alchemy Guild came through saying that a woman named Viola Engel had a ton of uh, laboratory wear and books, and she was looking to sell them to individuals who might be interested. And uh, I only live 20 minutes away, so I gave her a call straight away. As soon as that email came came across, I saw it. Gave her a call and went down to her house, and she felt that um, I might be possibly the reincarnation of Frater Albertus just because of my personality and what I had already known about alchemy at such a young age and all of these other things. And she was just very, very um, excited that somebody so young was getting into this work, and she ended up actually gifting me, like just donating all of the books that she had, um, including Rosicrucian books and, I mean, just tons and tons and tons of personal lab notes and everything, as well as her entire laboratory to me. And so it took me uh, several carloads to get all of that back to, over to my place. Um, but when I started going through that material, that really uh, expedited my path and brought me up to the level of a very adept student of Frater Albertus's. And so it was, like I say, kind of through fate and fortune that I even ended up getting into this. I didn't even know I was practicing alchemy at first. And once I did, I just, you know, I devoted my life to it. And so here I am all these years later and uh, just still teaching people what I've learned and still experimenting and still working on stuff. And, you know, far from the finish line and knowing all there is to know, but want to share my passion with with other people. Sure, it's, it's quite the thing to be told that you're the reincarnation of uh, someone like that. It's not that I'm against the concepts of reincarnation. It's, I'm perfectly open to them. But when I hear things like that, I mean, so many people are like, oh, I'm the reincarnation of Cleopatra. I'm the reincarnation of blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, you're probably just, you know, some schmuck just like everybody else. But, you know, when somebody else acknowledges something in you and says, you know, this is a big reason why I'm giving you these things, it, it is very, very humbling. And it, it also put a big responsibility on my on my shoulders too, saying, even if I'm not, I want to be able to live up to uh, the worthiness of being able to have these things. So I actually still own some of uh, Frater Albertus's laboratory wear and, and a good pair of his oldest asbestos heat-proof gloves and a uh, wide number of things. I've had some pretty pretty interesting experiences. So, you know, yeah, at any rate, sure. I, I don't want listeners to think that it's gone to my head and that I think that I'm the reincarnation of fraud or anything. That was just uh, what Viola had mentioned. It definitely sounds like you were uh, fated to get into this. So many people, they don't really recognize al alchemy as practical and they, they tend to think it's some sort of uh, Jungian archetypal mishmash of 
symbology or proto-chemistry. So just as a, as a quick rundown for the audience that may not be across what alchemy actually is, what is it? What are the core principles of, of alchemy and what does it seek uh, to do? Yeah, that's a really good, uh, really good question. And I guess, you know, the, the answer that you get would be different depending on which author or which lecturer or teacher that you're dealing with, because there's never been one unified alchemical tradition uh, in Europe. And this is partially why things are still so obscure and why they were even obscure for people like Carl Jung, who spent tons of time investigating and reading alchemical literature and things like that and why he came to the conclusions he did. But, you know, if, if I were to give my answer from my own perspective, I have probably 15 definitions of alchemy, depending on the way that we look at it. The most universal perspective that I can give is that alchemy really is the art and science of exaltation and transformation by observing nature and repeating her processes such to the degree that you become so intimately aware of what nature does that you can perform nature's job. And the purpose of working your way through alchemical lab work really is a self-mastery process showing and demonstrating that you have mastery over the principles and precepts that nature has when she creates either items of the vegetable kingdom or drives their evolution or the, the mineral kingdom or metallic kingdoms or animal kingdoms. And a proper alchemist does not limit him or herself to any one of those kingdoms, but works in all of them. And there are uh, very multitude and uh, multitudinous pathways that a person can actually go down in practicing practical alchemy. So there's not just one one way of doing it. And that's what makes the uh, the work so very interesting. But my own particular pathway, my own particular slant is in the footsteps of Paracelsus. And Paracelsus was an alchemist in the 1530s who utilized his alchemical work. Well, he, he was born in 1490s and, and died in the 1540s, but the majority of his written works were in the 1530s. And he used alchemy for the purpose of making medicines of remedial value. And he founded uh, an entire branch of Western medicine known as spagyric medicine. And spagyric medicine is actually ultimately what led to the development of chemistry and iatrochemical, that is to say, pharmaceutical science. And he invented the realms of toxicology and, um, and all these other things. But what people don't realize was that there was an entire cosmology behind his system as well that was intimately tied into alchemical works and how to make uh, exceptional medicines using alchemical technologies. Because during his day, most people were just like they, they are when you hear about alchemy today, they were obsessed with transmuting metals and turning lead into gold and, you know, all of these other things. The dreaded homunculus. Yeah, absolutely. Which Paracelsus also writes about how to, how to create a homunculus. But, you know, there are, there are lots of different pathways uh, that existed at that time. And being uh, very medically minded, he suggested at his time that alchemists throw out all of their baser desires to become rich and all of these other things and actually utilize the skills that they have to be able to create medicines of profound remedial value. And so it's in his tradition, the Paracelsian tradition, 
that I primarily follow. And uh, it's also the Paracelsian tradition that leads us to the practices of modern alchemy today, regardless of whether you're studying uh, in the footsteps of Frater Albertus and his successors um, like uh, Robert Allen Bartlett or, you know, even Manfred Junius, uh, who lived in Australia and, and founded Australerba, which is still around in Australia today. Um, Jeannie Radcliffe is also in Australia and teaches at, uh, I think they call that Paracelsus College down there. And so there are a lot of works of Paracelsus that are still really well known in the Western world. And um, all of these places definitely exist. Um, my own particular way of practicing has developed out of my own experiences and working with people like Robert Allen Bartlett and being heavily influenced by students of Frater Albertus and the, and the writings and things like that. But uh, all of us more or less descend from about the same lineage uh, in the 21st century today. I guess this is a good time to transition into um, how this is applicable to farming. We recently had a biodynamic farmer on the show, uh, John Bradshaw, and he, he went through numerous things with the audience. We got an idea of more or less how it works, um, the impact of Rudolf Steiner, seasonal sewing charts, things like that. So obviously alchemy from what you've, you've said has cosmic principles inherent in it. How did you come up with the idea that alchemy could be applied to biodynamics in particular? Yeah, sure. Well, I had always been very interested in biodynamics since about 2005 to 2006 when I started engaging in agriculture myself. And uh, so many of the practices are synonymous with alchemical practice. Like, for instance, the concept of uh, timing things by the heavens. Like uh, in, in most of spagyric cosmology, we have to um, either imbue our substances with planetary frequencies or we find things that have uh, what we call a determination to a particular planet. Or we also try and perform our work and time our work under the guidance of various uh, constellations when the sun and moon are in, in various constellations. And so there was already a lot of crossover between that and the seed starting times and planting times and transplanting times and so many other things uh, with biodynamic agriculture. So that was really the first thing. But in addition to that, there were a lot of processes that I could see that were not fully being utilized in the biodynamic uh, protocols that are primarily passed on today because Steiner wrote about and talked about in his lectures a whole lot of different, pro uh, pardon me, a whole lot of different processes, but um, not all of them have made them to the biodynamic uh, works of, of people today or what's mainstream and put out by biodynamic associations and Demeter certifications and other things like that. So um, I could just see that there were these gaps that I could probably fill. And over time, I started realizing that there was actually a lot of things that could be performed that are supplemental to what are included in biodynamic uh, agriculture today. And I started sharing a lot of my ideas with the biodynamic community and quickly got shut down because it wasn't purely Steiner based. It's a very rigid community, actually, in my experience and in the experience of many other people like myself who have been biodynamic enthusiasts or biodynamic farmers and gardeners ourselves. And then positioning ideas that say, hey, look, if we do this, this works and this is within the kind of scope of what would be biodynamics, just that Steiner didn't talk about it, I'm talking about it. And it's not always very well received because there's such a state of fundamentalism 
uh, within that community. Just like there's a state of fundamentalism within just about any community and revolutionary ideas tend to be um, somewhat adverse to the status quo of how things are, quote-unquote, supposed to go based on tradition. So what was your uh, actual experience in agriculture? My first wife and I, we had uh, about three-quarters of an acre of a backyard. It was a very large backyard um, where we were able to, at least for the, the neighborhood that we lived in, and we were able to plant you know, several trees and uh, grow some really amazing tomatoes. I was the only one of my neighbors who was able to grow watermelons because those, those typically grow in very humid environments. And here in, in Utah, we're in a high mountain, arid desert environment. That's crazy. Yeah, I can't imagine how it would grow there. Yeah, well, the, the actual technique for that was just based in nature is like, okay, well, if I need a lot of humidity to surround the plant, then why don't I build a mound and put uh, basically a trench around it. And so I would just line these trenches with waterproof material and then fill up the trenches around the base of where the plant was uh, planted. And I would fill those up with water, of course. And as the sun came over, it would actually cause an evaporation of that material, which would put the humidity into the air directly around the plant so that the plant would be able to take up the amount of humidity that it needed and in such a way try and replicate uh, or perform biomimicry, so to speak, um, just using a little bit of clever ingenuity. When we spoke to John, he, he spoke about preparations in biodynamic farming. So you have horn manure, horn silica, and, and obviously it, this kind of stuff works, right? Because feedback from farmers around the world would indicate such. Um, what, what kinds of like additional treatments would you lay on top in your version of, of alchemy culture? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So I still use a lot of uh, biodynamic or biodynamic inspired preparations as well. But see, you, ha you have to kind of understand the principles behind why the biodynamic preparations work in the first place. Like, for instance, you kind of have to cross-reference literature from eras that did not belong to Steiner or that came after Steiner. So, for instance, with understanding how horn silica or horn manure, let's talk about horn manure, BD500, how that one works is that the horn itself on a dairy cattle, so this has to be a female cow, it doesn't work if it's taken from a steer, um, it actually is an organ that is picking up, it's, it's acting like an antenna, it's picking up infrared radiation and RF signals um, from the environment. And it's actually based on these that those cows are able to determine where the best grazing pastures are. And so a lot of people think, oh, well, cows will just eat grass and you just put them in a pasture and that's what they eat. But that's not necessarily true. Given um, a choice and left to their own devices, they will actually utilize those horns to be able to find where they want to graze. And a lot of this information is very heavily inspired by Phil Callahan's work, who goes into deep detail about the importance of uh, low electrical systems and uh, infrared radiation and uh, you know radio frequencies and so on and so forth in relation to agriculture, not only to avoid pests, but also to increase the bounty, the harvest and uh, the lusciousness of various greens. And so these these horns are actually tuning instruments, uh, organs for the, the dairy cattle. And so when you take that and you fill that up and place that in a 
particular depth in the ground, what you're relying on is the Earth's magnetic field interacting with the diamagnetic value of that horn uh, and also the shape of it in order to be a proper receiver for various frequencies and various energies that are conducive for the proliferation of microbes. And it just so happens that the depth that you bury these is also heat stable, so it helps with the heat proliferation of the microbes as well. It's, I mean, everything that you get down to when you get right down to it is very, very actually scientific, and it's less woo-woo than what a lot of people would like to think. Um, Phil Callahan says that there's really three things that determine the health of any soil. That's compost, organisms, and paramagnetism. So the, the manure itself has two of those requirements already. It has compost and it has organisms by way of the grass already being decomposed uh, and through the digestive system. The grass itself is a compost and a lot of people use compost and manure. It's one of the most... Uh, most commonly used agricultural inputs next to earthworm castings, actually. And then you also use the organisms that are in there, but they have to be proliferated properly. The next thing that you need is paramagnetism. So it, it just serves to take the horn and pack it full of that manure and put it into the ground. And then that begins to proliferate those microbes. With other preparations, like, for instance, where you take... Uh, flowers and you stuff them inside of a stag bladder, for instance, and sew up the stag bladder and bury that, um, that does the same thing. It's just taking the microbes and the compost minus the paramagnetism and making a compost preparation so that you can put that compost preparation into various areas of your compost pile. And then those microbes will begin to proliferate. And so when you start to take a look at the principles behind biodynamic agriculture, you see that there's really just processes that they're using in order to cultivate various microbe sets uh, based on the wild yeasts that are found on the outside of the plant materials in combination with the very particular bacteria that are found in various areas. So like a pig skull or a stag bladder or, you know, the chamomile flower intestine prep and, you know, all of these other things. But there was one prep in particular that always interested me, and that was the valerian flower prep. Uh, I believe that's BD-508. And the valerian flower prep was really interesting because they would just submerge it in water and do an anaerobic fermentation and then be able to sprinkle that on the materials. And so I started doing this with a wide number of different uh, materials like uh, tomato leaves, um, or potato leaves or, you know, cucumber leaves or whatever else. And then eventually got the idea to do the same thing with the flowers of that plant and then even the fruits of that plant um, and creating these, these anaerobic ferments um, that could be applied in diluted ratios, very similar to the way the valerian is, is applied. And um, I started to see that there was a pattern here, that if I take the tomato greens and ferment them like this and add that in a watering pattern, then that's going to help the tomato plants in particular during the vegetative phase. And if I take the tomato flowers and ferment them like that and apply that in, in uh, diluted ratio to water, that's going to help during the flowering phase. And if I do this with the fruits, then it's going to help the fruiting phase because the fruits, the flowers, the, the vegetative greens, those all hold all of the nutrients that are actually necessary for the development of the tomato because they're actually made from that very same plant at those, those same stages. And so I realized that 
there is a universal principle behind this that can actually be utilized. And with a little bit of further research, I realized that they've been doing this in Korea for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the concept is known as Jadam, J-A-D-A-M. Well, at least that's the way we'd spell it in English. So that that was kind of some of the, the thought and the philosophy behind it. And I just kind of continued from there. So that, that's kind of obviously the heretical part. I'm imagining that a lot of, a lot of other farmers don't embrace necessarily or? Yeah, they would say like, well, listen, if that works so well, then Steiner would have talked about it, you know, or things like that within the biodynamic community. And it's like, well, listen, he had a limited number of lectures that he was able to give and a limited time to be able to give those things um, just because he found the particular different flowers and, and combinations of animal materials that were able to find yeast and bacteria that would work well. We can arrive at the same solutions or very similar solutions by uh, finding those scobies. A scobie is a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast um, through various mixtures of different materials as well. And so we don't necessarily need to say, stay so strictly in the box with all the BD preparations that Steiner mentioned. That's more for me of a guide to show the thinking and the idea behind why things would work and how things would work and how to do it if you didn't know any better or if you didn't try and, and progress upon the technique or the methodology. In the writings I read of him, I don't recall him saying that it was like a, a set in stone a revelation from heaven that is immutable or anything like that in my own investigations at least. So it's a, a funny attitude that they have. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's not all biodynamic people, but it's, it's uh, very generally the biodynamic community in general has been very unreceptive to, uh, and, and I'm speaking about the biodynamic community here in the United States. So, you know, abroad or elsewhere, it, it could be entirely different. And even outside of say F Facebook and Yahoo groups, it could be very different as well too. Um, but, you know, I've, I've gone to several biodynamic conferences and, and spoken with a lot of biodynamic individuals and the general receptivity to the works of what I'm doing is like, oh, well, that's really cute, but it's definitely not biodynamic. And so they're, they're just very um, off put by the ideas. You mentioned in some of your writings uh, holographic and fractal principles as alchemy. Um, I was just kind of interested in how these principles uh, fit into this whole uh, framework that you're elaborating on here. Is that kind of what we've been talking about? Or um, I was interested specifically in what you meant by that. Yeah, that's absolutely great. So um, kind of the keystone of alchemical literature, regardless of how far you go back in history, is called the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. And he uh, was allegedly an author. A lot of people think um, his name could have been Balinas the Wise historically. But he's known as Hermes Trismegistus, or the thrice great Hermes. And he uh, wrote this, this little seven paragraph, we call each of the paragraphs the rubrics, but seven rubric tablet that was uh, allegedly set in bar relief in emerald. And how it was set in bas relief in emerald uh, always astounded authors, but there's a lot of works of how to be able to create your own rubies and gems. And even the Comte de Saint-Germain in France uh, in, in court was able to show uh, how he was able to do that and remove the, the flaws from emeralds and rubies and so on and so forth, uh, sapphires and so on and so forth. 
Um, and it's not really alchemy, but it's very related to alchemical works. And a lot of other authors like Robert Allen Bartlett even talk about undertaking that work as a very young child. I think he was like 10 or 11 or maybe even younger when he started attempting those works. Um, and they're written about pretty prolifically. So that's the way that it would have been done is that it was actually, you know, you would have carved out like uh, ceramic letters, cast the letters, set them into a dish and then poured in your molten, uh, your molten mineral material so that as it sets, the letters appear to be in bas relief. This is kind of the way that that tablet was legendarily created, but the, the seven rubrics behind it describe an entire holographic and fractal pattern to the universe, which is interesting because the the most cutting edge modern quantum physicists are finding uh, that there could be very similar structures uh, to the universe in that they are holographic. And there's even books called The Holographic Universe, for instance, in which readers who are interested could be able to dive into some of those ideas from a quantum uh, modern science perspective. That being said, uh, the Emerald Tablet starts off saying, in truth, without deceit, certain and most veritable, which is another way of saying on all four levels of reality, the spiritual, the causal, the astral, and the physical, what we're saying here is true. And then it says, that which is above is as that which is below, and that which is below is as that which is above for the performance of the miracles of the one thing. And just as all things have come from this one thing through the meditation of one mind, so do all things originate from this one thing through adaptation. So you kind of have to put your archetypal thinking cap on and look at this in a, in a very ancient mindset where things pro possibly aren't so dense. And what that's really saying is if things that are above are the same as the things that are below, even though we can clearly tell there's differences, what is it that they're talking about? And it must be the method or the principles by which they are created and destroyed and regenerated and so on and so forth. And, you know, when they talk about the one thing, for instance, if we were to deduce what is the one thing that all created things have in common, well, it's simply the fact that they were created. So the one thing is the fact of creation. It is the state of creation. So all things come from creation. And it tells us that this happens through the process of adaptation or another way of translating that would be through evolution. And so there are like, for instance, in the golden chain of Homer, Vanton Kirchweger's work, uh, or he, under the pseudonym Homerus, he wrote the golden chain of Homer. Uh, there is an entire methodology by which you can prove this to yourself using nothing other than rainwater. If you take rainwater and distill it into its proper fractions and seed it with what's called the universal seed of life, which happens by fermenting that rainwater, the different fractions that you add together, which are actually constellational in nature, there's 12 different fractions and 12 different constellations that are included in there. The different types of combinations that you add will actually begin to incubate various forms of life, either very primitive vegetable life or animal life or mineral life and so on and so forth. And at the end of those lifespans, you can take that, calcine that to an ash and add that ash back to another set of uh, different types of water fractions. And you can see that there is definitively an evolution and a change to all of those materials. And the materials continually get more and more and more and more advanced. In fact, it's based upon this very same philosophy that at some point you stop feeding it with just its own 
uh, GUR, calcine GUR, and you start feeding it with human blood, and that's how you would end up creating a homunculus if you were to work within the animal realm. So like that, that's a very real thing. For people who are interested in that, you should read uh, Mark Stavish's book on Dr. Lazuski. With that being said, um, all of these principles are actually demonstrable. You don't have to have faith and you don't just have to think like, oh, well, they did it. And so therefore it's true or therefore it might be true or it happened so long ago it's fake. Like you, you don't need to speculate. You can actually just dive right in and do it and you can demonstrate the principles for yourself. And so I was able to do that already by the time I really became aware of the Emerald Tablet and started looking at it with these very uh, deep eyes. And then the third rubrics and the fourth rubrics of that tablet really give us what's called, or what Dennis William Houck calls, the Emerald Formula. And this tells us how all of nature perpetually repeats holographic and fractal patterns of what he calls calcination, dissolution, separation, uh, conjunction, fermentation, distillation, and coagulation. Um, I actually define those steps a little bit differently uh, for my students based on the works of, of uh, Paracelsus and of Spagyria and so on and so forth. But uh, regardless of what you call them, the processes and their archetypal nature are exactly the same. And when I started to take a look at nature and realize that the way alchemists actually came to to attain their knowledge was not just by tinkering around in a laboratory, but by sitting out and observing what nature does. So if you take a look at any forest, a forest is only healthy for 50 to 150 years, and then it needs to burn. At least the underlayer needs to burn. And what that does is it not only makes potassium carbonate and other minerals available for the soil by way of the ash, but it also cuts out a lot of that undergrowth that is stifling the forest and preventing things from growing up. And so the largest trees and the tallest trees in any forested environment typically have developed a bark that is uh, less susceptible to burns or at least less fatally susceptible to burns so that they can survive that. Like here in the United States, ponderosa pine happens to be one of those. And it grows a lot uh, around the areas of Escalante and Boulder Mountain here in Utah with uh, quaking aspen trees. And the quaking aspen would actually choke out the forest if it wasn't for the natural processes of burning that would happen. And if lightning doesn't make it happen naturally, then uh, our own Native Americans would actually come through and they would burn it. And they said that it was absolutely necessary for the health and the maintenance of the forest and the fish and everything else. Because if there's too much growth in that understory, then the rains can't actually seep through the soil and make it into the aquifers, which will replenish the springs, which give them the fresh water that they need in order for drinking, bathing, etc. And uh, the lakes dry up and everything else. There's ecological hazards. So ironically, fire, if it's not put into place into nature, ends up driving the extinction of an area and causing desertification over time. So I saw that as a principle and I saw the waters and the rains and the seasonal monsoons as a principle, which would be the dissolution thing. And I saw fireweed coming up after all of that would happen, after the fires and then the rain, the very first plant to come up after that, whether in volcanic areas or otherwise, is fireweed. And it's pretty much ubiquitous all over the world, as far as I understand. And so I saw that as a separation and be, the roots being able to grow through all of that new mineral and, and separate out the potassium carbonate and help uh, organisms in the soil 
proliferate and and do different things. And you know, based on the works of Dr. Lewis Kervrin, who wrote a book, uh, several books, in fact, uh, very scientific publications. Uh, but he wrote one called Biological Transmutation, where he showed that soil bacteria can actually take iron and transmute it to manganese and manganese to calcium and calcium to, you know, other minerals and so on and so forth based on archaea, bacteria and fungi inside of the soil. And so we start to see the separation actually happening to the point where new growth will actually come back. And this would be the fourth phase where Dennis William Hauck would call this conjunction. And then we see the extraction principle or, or you know, what Dennis calls the fermentation principle happening. Uh, and anybody who's ever been in any sort of environment where the humidity in the air actually passes through the plants as they transpire on a hot day and you can smell either the flowers or the trees or here in, in Utah, we have a lot of sage. You can smell the sage and it adds to the desert ambiance of what uh, just the local environment. And you can see that an essential oil extraction is actually happening right before your very eyes. You can smell it in the air, even if you don't understand it. And so being able to replicate these same principles inside of the laboratory is just kind of the next step. It's isolating it and bringing it into a micro state so that you can see and demonstrate that very same principle that nature performs for yourself and by yourself. And so it was all of these different processes along with distillation, which is basically the evaporation of water systems and, and uh, their further condensation, just like we see with water systems and clouds and rain. All of these processes really lend to what nature constantly does. And so when I was able to stand back and just look at my natural ecosystem or even my yard, for instance, and see what really makes it tick, all of these processes have to be into play. And these are the universal processes that all of nature abides by, that even our psyche abides by. And I teach classes on the transpersonal nature of this called transpersonal alchemy. So for those who are interested in the psychological ramifications, transformation, exaltation of the character, we're able to see and utilize these very same principles, whether in the lab, whether in nature, whether to immaterial things like thoughts and emotions or our life's desires. And it just seems to be very universally holographic and, and fractally applicable. So that's kind of what I mean by alchemy provides us with a holographic and fractal pattern. Uh, one way I, I heard a farmer recently that I follow on YouTube, he's into regenerative agriculture, but in a more commercial sense, he's not biodynamic or anything like that. But he, he described his system as uh, prone to exponential decay or exponential regeneration, effectively. And it kind of sounds like that's, in a way, what you're describing. In, in a contained biodynamic system where you have all these elements that are, you're not taking resources from the outside, it's meant to be a self-sustaining system. How would you practically apply that, say, with with uh, cycling animals through and, and uh, how do you see the adaption of these elements in, a, in an actual farming system? Well, there's really two answers to that. The, the first one is that you can attract what already should be existing in that ecosystem back to the ecosystem just by employing what that ecosystem would have done were there no interference from human models. So, realistically what animals existed there what plants existed there what was native so on and so forth in areas like the united states and presumably also australia uh, large swaths of the land have actually been westernized where the, you know all sorts of foreign materials have actually been brought to the land by migration um, 
what that means is that in some ways you're synthesizing the environment. So the, really alchemicology would be the principle of taking what is native to that area or indigenous to that area and uh, regrowing those things and, and getting that ecosystem on par for where it ideally should be from that indigenous perspective. The second is more of an exogenous thing. And that's where I think most of us as agriculturalists are because you know the, the second that we plant an orchard, we're going against all the principles of nature. But still we can sustainably make an orchard part of a grander ecosystem. There's this really great uh, documentary called The Biggest Little Farm uh, that follows a couple of individuals from California who undertake this mission and, and uh, they have a, a great answer and a great way of stumbling into grace around how they do this. Um, but I would say that what it, what it really looks like is driving the diversity of all of the materials that uh, you want to have and maintaining as much diversity as possible uh, anything that can feed into one other system. So where every system feeds into the next system, every animal feeds some part of the vegetation, the vegetation then feeds another animal or the insects that might be attracted to those things then feed the animals or so on and so forth to where there is a symbiosis. And that's really the way that nature works in harmony is by being able to create symbiotic systems where every everything has a place in order to feed into the next cycle of life. And it's supported by the cycle of life that came before it. And it just constantly repeats and constantly re repeats. And there is a, a point where you can no longer sustainably add more diversity um, in order for, for things to become sustainable. Uh, otherwise, it does start to dry out the resources of that particular ecosystem. It seems um, quite similar to biodynamics, but just in, in a way introducing just bigger concepts and, uh, and, and it requires in some sense being able to look at the land and determine as a landowner, you know, what's going on and, and having that sense of seeing, I think, is probably going to be important for this system. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. So like, for instance, biodynamics is relatively limited specifically to agriculture. And a lot of people don't play around beyond the system of biodynamics once they get into it because they view it as a complete system. What I've done is I've noted that there are multiple things that could be done that could be added onto or following the same train of that philosophy, just going to a different station down the line. So like, for instance, if I find that there's a, a particular habitat, like I live in the desert here, and there are huge swaths of Utah that basically have nothing but sagebrush growing on the lower layer and juniper trees growing on the upper layer. Um, and they're, they're really short trees, you know, maybe 10 to 15 feet tall. Uh, you know, we're talking like four meters, five meters at best. Uh, it's all what ends up happening is that if we take the roots of that organism, and ferment them in an anaerobic environment, like I was talking about before using that Jadam method, but with the roots of any material. So digging up some of that juniper, digging up some of that uh, uh, sage, and we ferment the root parts. Now what we're doing is we're taking all of the microbes that were down below the soil and we're bringing them up, concentrating them, and then applying them to the top of the soil. And what that does is it takes 
the condition of the top of the soil, which is usually very arid and dry, and it proliferates all of these different microbes that are going to perform the same types of biological transmutations or alchemical processes just on a microbial level to the soil and recondition it now to become more fertile for different things to grow. And so you can take things that appear to be very limited in their agricultural uh, uh, scope or in their ecological scope even, and you can actually drive the fertility of the land to host more things. And so you might see new plants come in and it's not that those plants just like arrived there mysteriously the birds have been eating them from various places and then you know the seeds fall through their droppings or insects carry them or whatever and they've been there before but they didn't have the right fertile condition to grow and so just as individuals our talents our interests they all might be existential seeds so to speak but unless we're put in situations in life where they're able to be nourished properly those things don't actually grow they don't ever come to fruition and the same thing is true with any sort of ecological or agricultural space where it all comes down to really being able to proliferate the right types of organisms to be able to culture the land in such a way that it becomes capable of holding more, capable of hosting more. And when you do this, um, there are aquifers under almost every land. And so when you culture things and you bring plant life back, now plants actually have, oh, I forget the name of the actual uh, chemical that they have, but they put out a hormone, they transpire a hormone. And that hormone raises out through the leaves and it goes up into the environment and it actually draws in the clouds. There's electrochemical relationships, just like the endocrine system in the human body or the nervous system in the human body between plants and rain systems. And so the very same thing happens, and there is a scientific name, it's just escaping me at the moment, but there is a, a, a relationship that all of these things have. And so the more plant life that there is, the more the rains get told, okay, we have to travel here. And on the back end of where the rains come from, the heat and the weather patterns have to increase in order to drive the evaporation of natural bodies of water to be able to create that humidity so that it can eventually turn into clouds. Then the weather systems can move those clouds and then dump and condense into rain where they need them. And with more fertile soil, instead of just rolling off the top of the soil like it does typically in a very dry, arid desert environment, now it's able to penetrate through the soil, make its way into plant roots, and what doesn't make it to the plant roots just continues to trickle down through the soil like a big filter down into the aquifers, which will naturally bring springs back to life that in some cases have been dormant for hundreds of years or thousands of years, possibly even millions of years from a geological perspective. And so it really just is utilizing what you have around you in a very clever way and not trying to synthesize the environment to meet your needs per se, but to see what the environment already is able to offer you. And in that way, we can transform the ecology and help drive the diversity of our planet and perform massive amounts of ecological restoration in a very short period of time. Obviously, the, the current way they're doing things is 100% not sustainable. It can't end well. I think uh, most people are probably aware of that, right? Like it's just not, not the way forward. But it sounds like what you're proposing here is is fascinating in the sense that it, it is going to encourage that kind of exponential regeneration that I was kind of talking about before. And the thing I was I was kind of interested in talking about, uh, you've been talking about microbiomes uh, micro bi uh, a lot um, in various uh, 
strata of soil or we have terrestrial biomes, aquatic biomes, things like this that science is just kind of starting to understand a bit. Um, people think I'm a bit of a lunatic for going on about this kind of thing a lot, um, but I, I really think that microbiomes in all these different environments are kind of interrelated and interconnected and 100% our health is really affected by the health of the biomes and the environments that we get our food from. Um, I know, for example, that in hunter-gatherer populations, um, they've done research on the types of gut phyla they have in, in their guts and in the environments that they get their food from. And it's, it's of a much more diverse and, and healthy ratio compared to, <coughs> compared to, say, what people in the West have, for example. Um, do you see this as kind of an important thing? And, and, and uh, do you believe there's some sort of transfer of microbes from plants and, and animals into us that is reflected in our health? Yeah, that's an absolutely fantastic question. And the answer is 100% absolutely. And for those who are looking for the scientific uh, proof or medical proof of this, I would just direct them to Dr. Zach Bush, who presents on this a great deal and talks about the importance of the biome, whether we're talking about an ecological or agricultural or human or animal or so on and so forth biome, that the more diversity of microbiology that there is in any environment, that is actually what's causing the transmutation of various minerals, metals, and substances to make it from one form to another and to create natural compost, enzymes, coenzymes, so on and so forth. And so it's a, it's a very scientific idea. Um, it's just underexplored by most people, which is why they would think it's woo-woo in the same way that those same populations would probably think that uh, biodynamic preparation 500 or BD 500 as horn manure is complete woo-woo and nonsense. But really, they're just not taking it deep enough with a logical understanding of the systems that we know about in modern day to think about it. But let me just put it like this. If you take a beet, okay, now in any environment, there's bound to be what are called extremophiles. And extremophiles are things that can handle, they're, they're microbes that can handle or love even extreme situations. So there are extremophiles in hot springs waters. There are extremophiles in volcanic magma. There are extremophiles in all sorts of things. Everything has a biome regardless of how extreme or intense that uh, ecological system or, or terrain really is. So... Let's just talk about, on a very practical level, the extremophile bacteria that are going to exist in a garden where, let's say, you grow beets or potatoes or some other form of root vegetable where you are cultivating heavy microbial dose. If you eat a little bit of that raw, you're naturally going to be inoculating your body with a tremendous amount of uh, microbes. And in fact, all you need to do is go and take a small amount of soil sample and put it into a Petri dish and let it grow. Uh, and you, you will see all the different types of bacterial and yeast cultures and fungal cultures, you know, all, all of the different things that are existing there in multitudes. We're talking, you know, oftentimes billions of cultures in square feet. So 
the more that you have and the more diversity that you have, you're inoculating your system with more. But let's say that you cook those beets, which is where I was going initially, or you cook the potatoes or whatever. The extremophiles are still going to be present and they're not going to die just by, you know, boiling them or baking them or whatever, roasting them or whatever. And they make their way into your system as well. But not only that, the more nutritious the, the, or the more microbes that, that there are in the soil in order to make the nutrients bioavailable for the plant at the root system, the more nutritious the vegetable source becomes. And so this is true whether we're talking about greens or whether we're talking about root materials or whether we're talking about you know fruits or anything. Also, above-ground vegetables are really amazing because they attract yeasts that are unique to that particular plant. And I know this because I fermented just about anything that you can possibly imagine performing what's called an endogenous anaerobic ferment. And that's where you just take a material, you don't add any yeast, you just take a material, chop it up finely, stick it in water, cover, you know, put a stone over the top of it, keep all of that biomass under the level of the water and throw on a fermentation lock. The yeast and the microbes that are necessary for the biological decomposition of that particular organism are present on that particular plant. So if you are heavily washing your produce or doing all of these other things and not growing it in a microbe-rich environment, you might not actually be contributing to your microbiome in the way that you ideally should. And this is why it's so important for people to not rely on agricultural goods to be transported from, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away from their location, but rather to to grow the things as much as they can themselves and to be able to eat these things so that you can control those microbes. Like I work with uh, Nature's Bio as uh, one of the uh, particular microbe sets that, uh, that we use. I also use Effective uh, Microbe Organisms 1 or EM1 is the name for that. Uh, and Bokashi would be uh, EM1 put into like a rice bran that you can spread into your food compost in order to break it down in a very particular way and proliferate those microbes. Uh, we also use all of the jadam or the uh, what I would call alchemiculture ferments, uh, the, those anaerobic endogenous ferments to proliferate microbes. We use lots of different things as foliar sprays and as root drenches to be able to drive that type of microbiological diversity so that not only is the nutrition there, but also when you eat the materials after lightly washing them, you know, just rinsing them realistically, they're still on there and they're contributing to the diversity of your own microbiome on an intestinal level. And, you know, the brain has its own biome and the gut has its own biome, the blood has its own biome and so on and so forth. And all of these microbes selectively based on which are resistant to say stomach acids or, uh, you know, your saliva and, and, other enzymes that are inside of the body, they're able to make it to the places that are needed the most or where those particular microbes are able to proliferate, which really drives the health of the system. If you don't have those things, you're going to become susceptible to, to disease. And that whole concept is really known uh, medically as terrain theory. And so there is a tremendous amount of evidence that shows that that's the case. And like I said, for those who are interested in learning a little bit more about that, I would just refer to the works of Dr. Zach Bush. Practically speaking, if, if someone's got a garden, they want to grow some potatoes or beetroots, whatever it is, what's a good way to start practically going about it? I know that um, in my understanding of alchemy, for example, there's a big emphasis 
on, on when you're um, doing the work that your spiritual development is commensurate with the results that you get from your, your lab work effectively. Is it the same thing with, with using these principles in your backyard? Can just anyone just use these principles without doing any, any personal growth work? Do, do you see what I'm getting at? Is it a... Absolutely, absolutely. That's a fantastic question. Here, here's kind of what I feel and what I've noticed with myself and with other people and with students and, and so on and so forth is that if you don't notice things inherently or you don't try to notice things, those are the type of people who don't really get results and they don't really make connections in other areas of their life, regardless of whether we're talking about agriculture or you know, anything. Like if somebody goes to school and they just learn what was being taught to them, but they didn't learn how to learn, then the applications of them being able to apply it to other areas of their life is virtually nil, right? They, they just don't have that capacity. The same thing is true with agriculture and, and with ecology is that if you're paying attention to the principles that are involved, then you'll be able to apply it to absolutely any area of your life. And what I've seen with most people, especially permaculture uh, uh, individuals or even to a large degree biodynamics is very very tied up with spirituality and it was like you know Rudolf Steiner was constantly talking about why we need to perform biodynamic agriculture in order to retain our spirituality because all of the spirituality is actually being drawn out of the land and and out of the foods that we eat um, Paracelsus just to to go on a quick but very related tangent, Paracelsus said that there were five causes of disease, and one of those was called en spirituale, or the cause of disease due to spirits. Today, we know that those spirits, or which is to say the animating factors of our life, really are electrochemical in nature and that they exist in the nervous system, they exist in our endocrine system, and those things are called neurotransmitters in the nervous system and hormones in the... Uh, endocrine system. And realistically, the less diversity that there is, the less of each of those are able to be biosynthesized because the, the, it's the gut microbes that create the enzymes and coenzymes that take the nutrition from the food, like the amino acids and the vitamins and the minerals, and actually biosynthesize them or perform internal alchemy on them in order to turn them into those neurotransmitters and hormones. And so, so many people today, like those with breast cancer, for instance, usually don't just have breast cancer because of genetic issues, although that's one theory within germ theory, but I've noted that they are chronically deficient in serotonin, which leads to an estrogen dominance because of lack of progesterone production. And estrogen dominance is acknowledged even today in the modern medical field as one of the main causes of breast disease and breast cancers, okay? So we're actually seeing that the health of the microbiome and the health of the foods that you eat is actually tied into your spirit, your spirituality, your animating force by way of neurotransmitters and hormone production and electrochemistry. But just beyond that, there is very definitively a quote-unquote vibration to the foods that you eat. And there are foods that have a quote-unquote low vibration and foods that have a quote-unquote high vibration. And those can actually be measured using sensitive electrochemical devices or just even electromagnetic instruments where you're able to see what the output is of things and various different types of coronal discharge 
using Kirlian photography and so on and so forth have been utilized in tons of different ways. Uh, I would refer back to the books by Thompson and Bird, like The Secret Life of Plants is a really great book that talks about that. Uh, the Electric, or the, what is it called? The Body Electric, I think, is another book. They didn't author that one, uh, but that one is another great book that talks about uh, different electromagnetic frequencies and signatures that uh, show up in things that are quote-unquote high vibrational as opposed to low vibrational. And so even though a lot of these terms are used very unconsciously and unwittingly by some uh, proponents of, of the New Age community and have been for decades where somebody can listen to that who has, you know, quote unquote, good sense and say, God, it, it just sounds so ungrounded. Well, yeah, perhaps they do. But it, just because they're ungrounded doesn't mean that they don't have some sense of what it is that they're talking about or that there's not some ping of truth to it. And if we just really balance those things that we view to be, quote unquote, woo woo or metaphysical or new age or whatever, with uh, corroborative sciences, that are able to show and demonstrate that there is some aspect of that, then we become much more holistic and much more unified individuals. And we can tell without a doubt that we are, quote unquote, raising our vibration or that we are becoming, quote unquote, more spiritual or more balanced, more aligned. You know, all of these different types of terms definitely apply to individuals who work with the soil and grow their own foods in such a way where it becomes undeniable that they have become healthier individuals, more integrated individuals by engaging in this type of agriculture. So what, what's a good way to get started, in your opinion? Well, you know, in, in my experience, starting off with biodynamics would be like starting off with calculus two in first grade. OK, so you a lot of people typically have to take baby steps and have to work their ways up. I would say purchase a book on permaculture first and get interested in permaculture. And once you have tried a couple of permaculture principles and grown maybe a couple of rounds of potatoes, you know, for a few seasons, or, you know, you've tr maybe tried and diversified and grown, you know, potatoes and you've grown strawberries and tomatoes and, you know, whatever else grows inside of your environment uh, to the best of your ability to become as food sustainable as you can and to increase the, the microbial wellness because that's what permaculture really is about, is increasing the microbial wellness and doing things in a way that you're, you're thinking permanently about the agricultural situation so that you have less work the longer that things go on. Then and uh, you might consider looking into the works of Phil Callahan. Uh, and Phil Callahan will take your understanding to a whole new level and you'll be able to apply new concepts and new precepts and kind of go from there. But it's all about just diving in where you can. Maybe just, you know, go on uh, the Great Courses website and, and you know, do one of their master gardening classes, you know, and just learn about the things and the science that makes it tick. Learn about the mycorrhizae and how the mycorrhizae actually is the nervous system of the soil. And when you do that, you begin to see that holographically and fractally, the things that you see around you, even though they visually alter in form, in function, they are almost identical to the same systems that make you work, like a nervous system, for instance, uh, and so on and so forth. And then you begin to really gather the principles and you develop, quote unquote, eyes to see and ears to hear nature in this new, entirely different way that makes it come alive and becomes very animistic. This has been an amazing chat. I've got, I've got so much from this, so I'm going to have to listen to it about 15 times, I think, to fully 
comprehend what you've given us here. It's been extremely uh, generous. In terms of your own work, um, if you just want to give yourself a plug, like I know you've got products out there, Spagyrex. Do you just want to uh, let the listeners know about what you offer, what you do? Sure, absolutely. So I run a research facility called the Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy, and a huge portion of my work is finding out how human uh, human health and wellness actually work completely disentangled from the theories and postulates of the modern day. And so I traverse back through history in order to find uh, ancient and historical solutions that are applicable even for our modern day. And uh, I perform a lot of wellness work. I work with subtle frequencies and intrinsic data fields to be able to perform wellness research on clients even from a distance. And I also offer a bunch of consultations like agricultural consultations, wellness consultations, laboratory consultations, product formulation consultations, and lots of things spanning the breadth of all of my areas of expertise that relate to uh, alchemy, astronomy, uh, magic even, and so on and so forth. And I also teach classes on alchemy. In fact, if anybody's interested, I have a teachable course uh, on, on te- or a teachable uh, academy on the teachable.com website, you can just go to Phoenix Aurelius Research Academy on there. And I have a free intro to alchemy course that's called A Brief Outline of Spagyric uh, Theory and Philosophy that people can sign up if they're interested in learning more about that. And of course, you can visit my website, my first name, last name.org, phoenixaurelius.org. And uh, that will be able to orient people to what I do. And we just encourage people to sign up for our newsletter and stay tuned to what we're doing because we've always got really fun, exciting things going on. And I have a huge apothecary of spagyric medicines that are 100% organic, wildcrafted, or uh, you know, ecodynamic is the term because I'm, I'm kind of beyond biodynamic. I include lots of different things. So my term is ecodynamic. Um, and, and I make a lot of these medicines for research, uh, due to limitations in the United States due to the FDA. I, I can't call these things, uh, medicines. I can't work with them as particular remedies, but we work with them as research materials. So if you're interested in what any of those quote unquote research materials do, please just don't hesitate to write into us and we'd be more than happy to, uh, let you know or help find a research material that is very uh, fit for your unique uh, needs or purposes. Do you um, do you ship overseas at all, or is it just a intra-America? Well, we don't ship to the United or uh, to the European Union, unfortunately, because they have restricted all supplements without having a doctor's uh, prescription for them. Mm-hmm. And because my materials are, are made for research and development purposes, unfortunately, we're unable to do that for prescription. But we do ship pretty much worldwide. We ship to China. We ship to most Asian countries, ship to most places in Latin America. We definitely ship to Australia, uh, Canada, and the United States. So most of the world. just And, and also certain uh, places in Africa, except for where the mail system is very unstable. This has been amazing. Uh, extremely generous. And I just want to thank you again for coming in and spending time with us uh, going through all this. There's so much material here to unpack and uh, definitely um, definitely learned a lot today, that's for sure. Well, excellent. I'm glad that I, I did my job well. Yeah, if uh, any of the listeners have anything that they uh, are interested in learning about or possibly some resources getting into agriculture, just 
go ahead and, and write us at uh, support at phoenixaurelius.org and we'd be happy to uh, answer your questions. And thank you so much for the opportunity to come on Ship of Fools. I've really enjoyed it and hopefully uh, we can do this again sometime soon. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to get some show notes off you and I'm going to post them uh, in the show notes for this episode so everyone has those links um, easily accessible. That's great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Phoenix. Cheers. Cheers, mate.